If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Oh, we have a great show for you today. In today's episode, we're getting real about COVID-19. Some stunning, stunning reports breaking in the past day or so about its origins and the vaccines. Um, We've got the former FDA commissioner um, and now actually the author of the New York Times bestseller, Uncontrolled Spread, Scott Gottlieb today. Really looking forward to that discussion. He'll be here in just a bit. Uh, We'll talk about natural immunity. He's on the Pfizer board. (laughs) What does he think about natural immunity? We're going to get into that. The increasing politicization of the vaccines, politicization, it's hard to say that word, and also the top mistakes that the U.S. made when it came to the pandemic. Did the lockdowns help? He's still defending them, I think. Do masks really work? We'll get into that. And we'll get into the truth on all of that. Plus, he's going to take your calls. How about that? That's exciting. But first, Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan is here. He joins us again to talk about how science is closing in on COVID's COVID's origins. And the signs, of course, point to the lab leak theory, but some are still denying it. And what's going on with the U.S. Agency for International Development and their new project to dig up more viruses around the world? That was an announcement that just came out. Didn't we didn't we just get through a pandemic or still in the midst of one as a result of folks doing that, trying to say, oh, let's take the virus, see how we can make it more dangerous all in the name of keeping us more safe? Yeah. How'd that work out? Josh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the new show. Thank you, sir. Um, okay, so by the way, your your episode where we talked about the ovin- the origins of COVID and all the COVID stuff, the first time you came on is still just killing it in our archive. So I recommend it to everybody and read Generally, Josh's book too. People want to know how we got into this mess so that they, we don't have to do this every two years. As it turns out, even though the right. Biden administration doesn't seem to want to know, the Chinese definitely don't want to know, WHO doesn't seem to want to know, but Americans right. want to know how did we get into this nightmare, this pandemic? Uh, because uh, unless we figure that out, we can't figure out how to keep our country safe. That's as simple That's right. as that. What's the point? And it's been such a lackluster effort on our part to actually get to the origins. Let me just spend one minute with you on that, since you've sure. been following it so closely. The Biden administration took another look at this after the WHO fell down on the job. That guy, Peter Daszak, was on the committee. They went over to China. They didn't see anything. They didn't push back. They were followed around by Chinese miners the whole time. Uh, minders. Not minors. That would be weird. And um, they so then they came back with this baloney conclusion. And then the Biden administration said, all right, we're going to take a closer look. Um, you said it was a waste of time what they did. They the, the our own intel communities came out and said mm, inconclusive. It's inconclusive whether it was a lab leak or his natural origins. And you said the whole review was doomed to fail. So do we put any stock whatsoever in what the Biden administration told us inconclusive about how it started? You know, tragically, it seems that the Biden administration has decided to throw its hands up, that they don't have any real plan that I can tell to 
try to figure out how he got into this mess. They won't release any of the intelligence that they're sitting on. They won't press the Chinese government to open up any of its books or open up the labs for any real investigation. They have this, like, if you think about it, horrendously and obviously weak alibi that they want China to cooperate with the World Health Organization when they know and they'll tell you when the cameras are off that that's never going to happen. And, you know, we wasted a year not looking for the coronavirus origins because people thought the lab leak was a Trump idea and they didn't want to get behind a Trump idea. So all the scscientists who were the closest friends of the lab, like Peter Dashtak, you just mentioned, called it a conspiracy theory. And we went through a year of that. And then finally, the Biden administration came in. and They said, no, it's not a conspiracy. Actually, some in our own intelligence community think it was the lab and we're going to look into it. And they promised to look into it. And all of a sudden, you couldn't call it a conspiracy theory because that would mean that Joe Biden would have to be in on the conspiracy. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So mm-hmm. now there was some hope. And now after they did it, what we found out is that they didn't really look. OK. And, you know, it's like that the drunk person searching for their keys under the streetlight. And the cop says, why are you searching for your keys under the streetlight? Oh, the light's much better here. You know, and what the intelligence community did essentially was they looked inside their own files and they didn't look anywhere else. They didn't look at the EcoHealth Alliance. They didn't interview anybody. They didn't talk to Robert Redfield, who was the head of the CDC and a virologist who said it probably came from the lab. And then they put him in like the witness protection program or something. I haven't seen that guy in months. And they didn't talk to Matthew Pottinger, who was leading the investigation at the time for the Trump. They didn't care. So they looked at their own files. And then the funniest thing, I mean, saddest thing, but kind of funny was that they determined they couldn't even read their own files. Our vaulted, vaunted $80 billion intelligence agency couldn't understand the, they didn't have any Chinese speaking, you know, scientists who could sort through the data. So they just said, oh, we're never going to figure out. And the Biden team was like, okay, I guess we'll never figure it out. And that's an abdication of their fiduciary responsibility to keep us safe, to protect us, you know? Mm-hmm. And what, you know, just you, you, what you what you mentioned today, we can get into this a little bit more, this USAID predict uh, program. Basically, what they announced is our own government announced that they're going to pour another hundred and twenty five million dollars of U.S. taxpayer money into hunting viruses, including SARS-CoV-2 related viruses all over the world for the next 10 years with no additional safeguards, no additional scrutiny, no accountability, no oversight and no idea how we got into this mess. In other words, we don't know. Right. For all your listeners out there who are about to tweet at me, we don't know how the virus originated. We don't know if it was a lab. We don't know if it was natural spillover, but we got to check out both theories, though. All I'm saying is we can't rule out the labs. We need to check it out. And we should probably do that before we spend another hundred and twenty five million dollars on expanding this research, because that's crazy. Mm-hmm. It is crazy. And this this organization, I mean, what what's going to who's going to be watching them to make sure that there isn't a leak or that it isn't mishandled or I don't know exactly. that you don't have a guy like Peter Daszak in there doing stuff and then misleading us, because that's the other thing that's happened today is that guy, Peter Daszak, who runs Eco Health Alliance, which is a taxpayer funded organization. You and I are paying for them, who seems to be behind every corner in this entire story. He's the guy who went over to China and he was like, there's nothing to see here. It's definitely not a lab leak. The Chinese Chinese are great. Meanwhile, we know from all the reporting we've seen over the past year or so that um, his organization was getting tons of taxpayer money, including approved by Fauci's organization, that to perform what very much looks like gain of function research, he's denying it, but research that takes viruses back coronaviruses and makes them more effective toward humans. And now there's a push to get him out of that organization for having misled us over and over. And continues to mislead us. It's really important what you're talking about, Megan. And just for all your listeners out there who aren't immediately familiar with who Peter Daszak is, he's this guy 
who runs this thing called the Eco Health Alliance. It's a nonprofit. They take money from the U.S. government. They take money from the Chinese government, actually. And they work to collect viruses all over the wild and bring them back to a bunch of labs and play around with them and see what's what. And when they find a really dangerous one, they're like, oh, let's study that one. And they were doing this in Wuhan. OK, and we don't know if that led to the virus outbreak in Wuhan, but they were doing back coronavirus research that made it more infectious to humans in the same city where the back coronavirus re- pandemic broke out. So it seems to stands to reason we should probably check it out. Mm. And Peter Dajic has been at the forefront of telling us not to check it out for a year and a mm-hmm. half. Now, <clears throat> a couple things changed recently, really importantly, since the last time we spoke, Megan. One was that, you know, the Intercept published these documents uh, from Peter Dajak's Eco Health Alliance, which said that they asked the U.S. government, a uh, part of the U.S. government called DARPA, for money to do back coronavirus research. That was very specific. And this is a little technical, but it's really important. They asked DARPA to fund them to put a furin cleavage site on the protein of Can the you say that one more time. Fur- say furin cleavage, explain because that most, most people don't know. Furin cleavage site means that they took the back coronavirus and they added a part of it that made it more infectious to humans. And that's what they wanted to do. And now we have a back coronavirus that's more infectious to humans because it has what? Guess what? A, hum- a furin cleavage site. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's the same exact thing. And it, that's not as, if that's not a smoking gun, it's about as close as we're going to get. OK, in other Can words, we just break that unless- down, though, because because look, speaking of the intercept, yeah. they reported a couple of months ago or maybe a month ago um, that that Peter Daszak's group, Eco Health Alliance, had applied to Fauci's group and the oversight group for a grant to do this. What looks like gain of function research. Fauci right. denies it. But all right. these scientists have come out and said that that was gain of function research that Peter Daszak right. wanted to do and that they did get the money that they that they did get the money. And th- and now today there's another report saying Daszak went to effectively the Pentagon and said, I would like a grant from you to do gain of function research. And it was denied. I think it was. Uh, in That's the DARPA one. Eight, that was OK. So there's two separate ones. That was in 2018. Sure. But so he he did get money from Fauci and Fauci's organization to do Correct. this dicey coronavirus research. And then he also went to the Pentagon and made very explicit, I want to do gain of function research on back coronaviruses. But the Pentagon said, dude, no, that's way too dangerous. Right. right. And, uh, you know, when the Pentagon says the research is too dangerous, they, you, you might want to think about it. Twice. But <laughs> the reason that they were doing all this research in China, uh, as you remember, is that the Obama administration banned this type of research. And then uh, in the early part of the Trump administration, a team led by people including Anthony Fauci, turned it back on, okay? And they built an oversight mechanism for gain-of-function research, and then they classified all the risky research as not gain-of-function. In other words, they built an oversight system, then they built a loophole, and then they drove through the loophole and bragged about it to the world. And so you can get caught up in this semantic debate over what's gain-of-function research or what's not gain-of-function research. But the point is they knew they were doing risky research, and they knew they were doing them in Chinese labs that had bad safety standards. And then when the bat coronavirus popped up next to the labs, they said, how dare you look at the labs? Don't you dare look at the labs. But we can't why even do talk think, about the labs. But why do you think that the report, uh, that, again, that just broke about um, – Dazic's group seeking to do gain of function research and getting funding from our Pentagon to the tune of 14 million dollars in March of 2018. And then he was denied. Why do we care so much about that when we we already know he got money from Fauci's group to do sure. what appeared to be gain of function research in connection with the the Wuhan lab separate and apart right. from that Pentagon grant? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Two reasons. One is because this particular proposal was so specific yeah. that if it had been funded, it would have created a virus 
that has the same exact weird characteristic that the SARS coronavirus has. In other words, they were proposing to build something that looks almost exactly like what the SARS coronavirus ended up being. Mm -hmm. And if that has no if that's a total coincidence, that's the craziest coincidence in the history of the world that they were proposing a specific change to back coronaviruses and then were denied. And then somehow a back coronavirus pops up in Wuhan where they're collaborating with that ex- exact characteristic, that ex- the same exact yes. one. Yes, just and make that people- point again. So Peter Daszak, just because he said the Pentagon said no to him, he was getting fun- uh, funding from our government and he was doing back coronavirus research and he was doing it in connection with the Wuhan lab. It wasn't like he was sitting by himself right. in North Carolina. He was over there. He was dealing with the so-called bat lady. Right. This guy's up to his neck in the back coronavirus research. And then him and Anthony Fauci and NIH director Francis Collins have the gall the audacity to go on national television and go before Congress and say there's no evidence that it's related to the lab. All of that is circumstantial evidence. Everything we just talked about constitutes what I think is very compelling circumstantial evidence. It's not proof, but it's enough that we can't just say, oh, well, we just can't look at the lab. So, you know, how dare these guys go before the American public, especially the ones that are employed by the U.S. taxpayer like Fauci and Collins and say there's no evidence that it came from the lab. Well, the reason there's no proof is because the Chinese cut government has covered up everything at the lab. They silenced the scientists. They jailed the journalists. They won't let us into the lab that we funded, right? We funded a lab. They won't even let us in when the pandemic breaks out next door. And now the proposal is to what, you know, double that research. Does that make any sense? And, you know, the scheme that Peter Daszak and the EcoHealth Alliance had going, they had so many streams of income. They were getting money from the Department of Homeland Security, check this out, to do coronavirus pandemic disinformation fights. In other words, they were hired by the U.S. government what? to fight pandemic disinformation. He was the architect they, of pandemic disinformation. And they spread pandemic disinformation. Exactly. <laughs> using our money to do it. And that's through the looking glass. That's some really sinister stuff when you just think about it for two seconds. And, you know, even Anthony Fauci the, to this day will say, well, OK, well, listen, if you want to go hunt for the origin in China, feel free, because he knows that the Chinese government's never going to do it. But it would be very easy for Peter Daszak. And, and Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins to open their books. And that's the second point that I want to make here is the reason that that contract was so shocking is we didn't know about it, you know, and it's mm. been two years. OK, and how dare the EcoHealth Alliance not tell us about that? And what else are they hiding? If two years later, the document could come out that constitutes a pretty good hint, a pretty good clue of how this may have happened. And that's not to say that Fauci funded the virus. I don't think I think that's too simple. I think what happened is we built them a lab. We taught them how to play around with viruses. And then they built another side of the lab, the side that they didn't tell about, tell us about, the side with the Chinese military where they did stuff that was really dangerous that we didn't have any insight onto. And what the Defense Department was paying Peter Daszak to do was to keep an eye on all of that, right? The Defense Department, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency is about reducing the threats. And he did the opposite. He increased the threats, it looks like. And even if the lab leak theory isn't true, uh, there's a huge vulnerability there. There's a huge risk there that we can't deny. And how can we do business with all these Chinese labs that tell us to go pound sand when the pandemic breaks out? It's it's really nuts. And then, you know, the politics of this are so screwed up that, you know, progressive Democrats are just sworn allegiance to the idea that the lab leak theory couldn't be true. But that it's not scientific. It has nothing to do with reality. It's just mm-hmm. their confirmation bias and kind of like their kind of ideological authoritarianism. And, you know, that pervaded for so long that, you know, we can't untangle this story. That's why conversations like the one we're having right now, Megan, are so important because people actually do want to know. They actually do want to figure it out. And even if the Chinese don't cooperate, even if they don't like it, we have to figure it out. And that means forcing our our own government agencies to be more honest 
with Congress and with the American people. And it means the Biden administration has got to get up off of this tushy and do something. OK, not just sit right. there and punt to the WHO, because uh, that is a terrible, terrible alibi. Um, OK, so can you just say it one more time? The the yeah. fancy term you just used, the f- what not fusion. What what it, what was it that was spliced okay. in? That he so wanted to what, splice into the to make the back coronaviruses more dangerous to humans. Right. So what they were doing is you have these back coronaviruses and they link to human lung cells in something called the ACE2 receptor. And the part that binds with the human lung cells is called the, the spike protein or the S protein. And what the coronavirus that's plaguing the world has that no other SARS beta coronavirus has ever had in, in history is uh, uh, an added piece that makes it bind to human lung cells even better than before, even more than before. And that piece is called a furin cleavage site. And that's been written about before. A lot of science writers have noticed mm-hmm. that. And some say, oh, well, it's just possible it evolved in nature. Sure. It could have been a random mutation that for the first time ever, this popped up in a bat in a SARS related coronavirus. Or it could have been part of the experiments that they were doing in one of these Wuhan labs. And the fact that Peter Daszak and the Equal Health Alliance submitted a grant application to do exactly that should tell us something. It should tell us that there was a lot of interest in making these bat coronaviruses more infectious to humans. And there's a reason that SARS in 2002, 2003 only killed, what, 8,000 people? That's a lot of people. I shouldn't say only. That's a lot of people. But we're up to 4.5 million, right? 700,000 Americans dead, right? That's a super virus. That's, a, that's what Robert Redfield said, that the way the virus acts, and if you look at this thing called the furin cleavage site, the, way, the, the unique characteristic that makes it so dangerous are very, very suspicious. And because the, the Wuhan labs were doing this type of research, and now we know that Peter Daszak was proposing to do exactly this type of research. Well, yeah, he's got a bunch of tough questions to answer that he refuses to answer, that he won't even answer, that he won't even respond to Congress. About. Can we talk about Richard Mueller for a second? Because he and Stephen sure. Quay had a great op-ed in The Wall Street Journal great piece in the Wall Street Journal in June yeah. on June 6, 2021. And now they just dropped another one yesterday. And I had Mueller on my show. Uh, he's professor emeritus of physics at the University of California, Berkeley, also former senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. He knows what he's doing. And sure. um, he wrote originally he wrote a piece saying, I've looked as a scientist at the data that was published advertently or inadvertently by the so-called bat lady out of the Wuhan lab. And the fingerprint is right there. It's the genetic fingerprint of COVID-19 shows you that it's got this thing. I think he's talking about furin cleavage site, but in his original piece, he refers to it as something else. But he says it's it basically is the thing that tells you a human has been here. This this he said it can happen in nature, but it's extremely rare and it's much more much more common when a scientist has been there. He says it's the exact sequence that appears in uh, COVID-19. And he says, um, "Okay, hold on a second. I just want to make sure I have the the right quotes. Um, Could have happened uh, naturally through mutations, but it's incredibly rare. Says much more likely that it was lab escape. And he says, uh, let's see. This is what he points to. He says, when you look at uh, the other coronaviruses, uh, that were the ones that were responsible for SARS and MERS, he says um, they took a long time to get powerful, to get good, 
to get exactly. good at what they did, um, exactly. to, to sort of rapidly spread amongst the human population and get to their most contagious selves. Not true with COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, whatever. Um, not true. Right. COVID-19 didn't work that way. It appeared in humans, this is quoting from his piece, it appeared in humans already adapted into an extremely contagious version. No serious viral, viral improvement took place until a minor, minor variation occurred many months later in England. Such early optimization is un unprecedented. And it suggests a long period of adaptation that predated its public spread. Uh, Science knows of only one way that that could be achieved. He says growing the virus on human cells until the optimum is achieved. This is what's done during gain of function research. They use, quote, humanized mice. They're repeatedly exposed to the virus to encourage the virus to adapt, get better, get stronger, figure it out. And his latest piece says, "Okay, you look at the, the previous like the background before SARS and MERS outbreaks. They found the animals. You think it's a natural origin? They found the animals that hosted the viruses there before they made the jump to human. More than 80 percent of the animals in affected markets were infected with the coronavirus when they when they looked at those. Not so here. The WHO team searched for a host in early 2020. They tested more than 80,000 animals from 209 species. Not a single one was infected with SARS COVID, with COVID-19, basically. Um, and so he and he goes on to make the point, we can only wonder if the results would have been different if the animals tested had included those humanized mice kept hmm. where? At the Wuhan lab. Right, right. Well, it seems like he read my book, Chaos Under Heaven, yeah, uh, right. which had a lot of this information in it. Uh, yeah, but what and he's everybody pointing out, Thank you, thank you. Uh, but what he's pointing out is that, you know, there again, circumstantial evidence, there's a ton of it. And he's pointing out something else that should be shocking to people. We've spent a lot of time looking for the natural origin. Sure, it might take a long time. But that's where 99.99% of the resources have gone. And the WHO report, which is like 450 pages, only spent three pages on the lab just to tell us not to look at the lab. And why is that? You have to come to the inescapable conclusion that uh, it was rigged. The, 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 the WHO study was rigged. And the scientists who are, are telling us not to look at the lab have a conflict of interest amongst them. Uh, Peter... Uh, Dashak and Anthony Fauci. And, you know, scientists can disagree. Like, listen, Megan, I've talked to scientists who say, oh, no, I definitely think it came from nature. And I've talked to scientists who say, no, I definitely think it came from the lab. Uh, But we have to discount those who have a financial conflict of interest. And then all of a sudden the table flips this way. Right. It's it's all it's 70, 30 natural origin. But when you take out the conflicted guys who've been misleading us for two years, all of a sudden it's Mm -hmm. 70, 30 the other way. And that should tell you something that the discourse has been corrupted by these guys who failed to acknowledge and admit their conflict of interest while doing everything they could to bolster the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda, by the way, not to say that they were agents, just to say that they're helping the Chinese Communist Party propaganda. Remember, the Chinese government has its own lab theory. Their theories, it came from our lab, right? It's not like they're not saying it came from nature. They're saying, oh, it came from the lab, but the lab was in Maryland, right? Now, of course, that doesn't make any sense because the outbreak didn't happen in Maryland. It happened in Wuhan. But if you just think about that, they must know that eventually we're going to Find out what you just found out, what you just read, which is that if you look at the virus, there's a lot of evidence it might have been evolved in some way in a lab. You know, it just it seems pretty clear. There's it seems pretty obvious that we should check that out. So the Chinese have a lab theory and, you know, and and you have these scientists are super conflicted. And Peter Daszak was so caught up in this conflict of interest that he had to resign from the Lancet Commission. Right. That was Mm -hmm. he was the head of the commission to look into the 
origins for Lancet. And then they had to shut down the whole commission. I mean, this well, is and, a, and, and a they co- put out in the Lancet. It's not a lab. It's not a lab. And then they they wound up embarrassed because I think he then was they admitted assuming the we, we'd never find any of the evidence. Right. And we have found the evidence. Let me say this. Yeah. Um, this. So Mueller. Uh, Richard Mueller ends his most recent piece. This is this just dropped yesterday, I think. Um, Yeah. And he ends it with the following. Let China keep its firewall of secrecy. A suspect who refuses to testify can still be convicted. We have an eyewitness, a whistleblower who escaped from Wuhan and carried details of the pandemic's origin that the Chinese Communist Party can't hide. The whistleblower's name is SARS-CoV-2. He's saying the fingerprint, the smoking gun is right there in the virus. Just look at it. All of the characteristics of it are telling us where it came from. If only we would open our eyes and still just to round back to what we talked about at the top, Josh, um, now, this USAID, you know, the, the the Agency for International Development that we talked about that's already been up to this in its neck and, and dealing with all this, um, they, they're announcing a new $125 million project, as we mentioned, to detect unknown viruses with pandemic potential and see how they can make them more dangerous for us. And in their press release, this is what they say. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic is a strong reminder of the connection between animals, humans and the environment. And, blo- and the effect that an emerging pathogen spilling over into humans can have on people's health and global economies. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. At best, or at that's least we unproven. don't know that. How can they at, say at best that? it's unproven? Right. But like this, right. we're about to give them one hundred twenty five million dollars to take viruses and make them more dangerous while they're still looking right at us and telling us not to believe our lying eyes. Well, listen, Megan, I hope sincerely that Congress will intervene and prevent that program from moving forward until or unless New safeguards are put into place until or unless we're ensured that none of these problematic Chinese labs will be included until or unless the definition of gain of function research is not used as a uh, alibi to fund gain of function research without stating as much. And, you know, that's our only chance here. It seems like the Biden administration has has abdicated its responsibility. I know people in Congress care. The question is, are they going to do something about it? And by Mm -hmm. the way, the one part I disagree with is, no, we can't let China off the hook. Uh, no, we have to use our power and influence to press them for access to those labs. And what happened to the database they took down that had all their the public database that had all the virus information in it? We need to see that. And right. if not, there should be diplomatic and scientific consequences, because this is not just about public health. This is also about how to deal with the Communist Party of China that is now having a grave, grave uh, effect negatively on our national security and our public health. OK, and so now there's really interesting evidence coming out about when China knew it had an outbreak on its hands. And Josh actually tweeted this out and said, you guys should watch this documentary by Sherry Markson. Uh, It's Sky Australia, Sky News Australia. And we've got a couple of really good clips queued up. The documentary is called What Happened in Wuhan. And I'm going to play those clips and ask you to put them in perspective for us and tell you, ask you to tell us like what we learned from this, because there is a lot of good information in this documentary. And I think uh, I would love to use your expertise for you to explain it to us. So we're going to do that right after Let's this break. It. When Josh Rogan, columnist for the New York for the Washington Post, um, continues with us, he's brilliant. You can tell that yourselves. Don't miss that. We're going to be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to The Megyn Kelly Show. With me today is Josh Rogan, columnist for The Washington Post and author of Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Well worth your time. Buy that book. You will not be sorry. You'll learn more there than you learn in any newspaper on the origin of COVID-19. Okay, Josh. So Sherry Markson of Sky News Australia does a great piece. It's 
it's only like an hour long. What happened in Wuhan? And you tweeted out it's got a it's got a ton of good info, which coming from you is the ultimate compliment for anybody reporting on this. The first soundbite we have is her, Sherry, speaking to a Chinese defector named Wei Jinsheng, um, talking to him about because he's here in the United States, but he's still can very, very well connected to top people in the Chinese Communist Party and, and elsewhere. And she's trying to ask him, when did they know? that there was an outbreak underway. You'll hear a reference to the 2019 military games in China that happened in October 2019. Let's listen. When did you first hear that there was a virus in Wuhan? Was it during the time of the military games? Yes. I learned there was an unusual exercise by the Chinese government during the military games. And so I told Diamond about the possibility of the Chinese government using some strange weapons, including biological weapons, because I knew they were doing experiments of that sort. Wow. Okay, I'm going to get you a comment on that, but just to add a little context to it. Uh, the military games, again, happened in October of 19 in, in Wuhan. There were reports of athletes becoming sick, uh, afterward, 9,000 athletes were there. They went home to some 100 plus countries. Um, so what, you know, biological weapons, that's different from, that's not exactly the same as lab leak. I realized it was a part right. of the Wuhan lab. We don't know what's going on. And the Chinese exactly. military was reportedly in there. But what do you make of what he just said? Sure. Well, first of all, everybody go watch Sherry's documentary. She interviewed President Trump, John Radcliffe, Mike Pompeo, Miles Yu, a bunch of other people who had a first a front row seat to this whole thing. And Radcliffe is the former director of national intelligence. Yes. And top Trump administration, but also people who had who were inside the system, many of whom who I talked to for my book, wall came to the conclusion that, hey, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to these labs. We should check out these labs. And, what you know, I also know way he was a, a leading democracy, pro-democracy advocate back when China had a pro-democracy movement. Now he lives in exile uh, around here, around Washington, D.C., and he's credible. But if you don't have to believe him, uh, there's a ton of uh, public information put out by the Chinese government about their biowarfare strategy. And again, this is something that you could get canceled for talking about a year ago, but now it's kind of obvious. We have a biowarfare program. They have a biowarfare program. Guess where theirs is located? Uh, where all the viruses are, okay? Where all the at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and other places, also in Beijing, they have a network of of now. Was this part of that? We don't know, okay? Are we pretty sure that they have a biowarfare program that involved viruses? Yeah, absolutely. Is it a coincidence that the PLA took over the Wuhan Institute of Virology after the pandemic broke out? No, probably not. Okay, so we the don't Chinese know the military. details of how. How, how the yeah sorry the Chinese military so we don't know the details of how their biowarfare program is connected to this but we can't rule it out and that's not a conspiracy theory that's just an obvious I think well established fact now mm -hmm. the thing that you talked about next which is like when <laughs> did this thing start well that's yeah. a real mind blowing kind of idea because most of us assumed that it started in December then we found out maybe November then Robert Redfield said maybe September or October and. That changes everything because that means that if it's true that it came out in September or October, which is when the Wuhan Institute of Virology took its database offline, coincidentally, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if that was the truth, then that means they covered it up for four more months that even than we thought we knew they covered it up some. But this would be another four months. And, you know, I got contacted by several uh, athletes who were at those Wuhan military games in October of 2019. And this is not, you know, th they they had their own 
experiences. And many of them said they got deathly ill with what they later realized to be COVID. There was no COVID test at that time. Many of them still haven't been tested. But one of my uh, uh, sources said that in his team of 15 athletes, five of them got so deathly ill, they had to put them to the back of the plane on the way home to keep them away from everybody. And they also said that when they were in Wuhan, it was eerily quiet and the government was doing all sorts of weird things like making everybody wash their hands all the time. And and that the public was into I mean, so there's a, then if you look at the sort of history of procurement of the labs, there's more evidence that something happened there in September ish. Wait, I want to get and, into that. I want to I want to get into that. Um, so, so yeah, this is my, soundbite number two. But I'll, I'll let you finish sure. your point. You, you finish your point and then I'll do and then I'll get into the PCR machines. Yeah, there's a mounting pile of evidence that says we have to rethink the whole timeline of this pandemic and account for the fact that China must must have been uh, covering it up far longer than we previously believed. When when did we believe they knew that they had a virus on their hands? Well, originally, the, the, the Chinese government and their scientists said their first case was in early December. That's what we thought for a while. And then okay. later uh, we found out that, oh, through our own intelligence, that there had been some uh, cases in November. And then it started popping up in other countries in their blood samples from like November and December. And they're like, oh, how did it get to Italy in November and December? And that was one clue. And then we started to learn more about what was going on in the labs. When did the researchers get sick? It turns out they got sick in October. That was another clue. Then there was the Wuhan military games thing. That was another clue. And sooner or later, everyone in the know started to realize, oh, wait. This thing must have been circulating much earlier than we previously knew. Than we knew. Okay, so which here's... means they let it out earlier, which means they sent it through the military games to a hundred different countries. Which means that's what's going to happen when they have the the Olympics in Beijing in four months from right now. So uh-huh. how can we have an Olympics in China when the last time they had an international military event they hit the virus probably, and it may have been a super spreader event, the very first super spreader event. Now mm. we're going to trust them. Again, by sending our athletes say, there the, again. How does that the make most sense? the most generous interpretation is that they hid it while they knew it was out. I mean, there's, you know, we listen to the, the, the right the Wei Xing and it's like, well, maybe they did not hide anything. Maybe it was intentionally set out. Who the hell knows? All right. Wait, soundbite number yeah. two. I realize you don't think that's what happened. I don't think that. Soundbite, don't think soundbite number two is where uh, this is Sherry Markson talking to former DNI John Ratcliffe, our, our United States former DNI under Trump, about the Chinese buying up PCR machines. Now, you guys know PCR tests, right? We've all had to have one of those. They test for COVID. Um, They suddenly started buying them up like crazy, like they were candy in 2019. Listen here. There was a buy-up of PCR equipment used to test for coronaviruses in Wuhan in 2019. The next month, one of those machines went to the Wuhan Institute. Is this something you're aware of, that they bought a PCR machine in November 2019? I wouldn't be able to comment on that. How significant would this purchase be? Would be significant. Is it a smoking gun? Ultimately, I don't think there's ever going to be one specific smoking gun. Um, I think there's um, more than just smoke here. I think there's fire from a whole bunch of different sources. Um, I think that would be another compelling piece of uh, evidence. If you need more, I don't need more. I don't need more either, John. <laughs> um, OK, so Josh Rogan, the, then on top of her reporting there, you've got the Telegraph uh, with a report out yesterday saying um, and they're citing a study done by Internet 2.0, a cybersecurity consultancy that specializes in examining data from China. Don't know if that's that's, uh, that's Sherry Martin's source. OK, same source. Yeah, that's the same. So, 
they put a, a little bit more meat on the bones, um, saying that Internet 2.0 concluded that spending on PCR equipment in Hubei province, that's where Wuhan is, where the lab is, increased to 13.4 million in 2019 from 6.9 million the, the year before and 5.7 million the year before that. The Internet 2.0, that that company concluded, quote, the virus was highly likely to be spreading virulent, virulent, I can't say that word, virulently <laughs> in Wuhan, yep. China, as early as the summer, summer of 2019, definitely by autumn. Right. So there's a lot there. So this PCR test thing that I think of that as like one data point. OK. And it doesn't tell us anything really by itself. But when you put it into the larger puzzle, it bolsters the case that something was amiss in Wuhan around this period. Another thing is that the Wuhan Institute of Virology started buying like a new air conditioning system in September. That was part of the report by the House of Foreign Affairs Minority Clorox Committee. wipes. Yes. There was another. <laughs> right. There's also the reporting that uh, the Chinese government started to buy up all the masks. And why were they buying up all the masks and, and PPE again in October, not in January? And then we sent them all the masks. And then uh, when we got hit, they wouldn't even send us the masks from our own factories, from the ones we had in China that we thought were ours. But turns out aren't ours at all. So, there, again, I would put this into a tap. I wouldn't put too much focus on PCR tests or or this or you know cell phone data or was the parking lot full of this day or full on that day. All it shows us is that there's so much about these Wuhan labs that we don't know. And. What Radcliffe said that was really important in that clip was that he can't talk about the intelligence that we have. And, you know, the Biden administration could snap his fingers right now and release a bunch of information that would help us understand what's going on and how we got into this mess. And they don't want to do that. It seems like they don't want to do that because they don't want the the issue, the problem of dealing with it politically and diplomatically. They don't want to throw progressives under the bus. They don't want to complicate U.S.-China relations. And they're doing that at the cost of our national security and our public health. So, you know, all Radcliffe has to say is, hey. Uh, Biden, why don't you just release the stuff that I've already seen? That would get us somewhere. That would be better than what we've got now, which is a total vacuum of information and effort. Mm-hmm. Trump was asked too in this in this documentary, um, "What do you think?" And he w- was limited in what he could say, uh, and he understood that he had some obligations in terms of classified information, but but put it over ninety five percent that this came from a lab, uh, having seen whatever it is he's seen, and it matters. It does matter. All right, we we have got more to do with Josh, including a third clip. We're going to do it right after a quick break. Josh Rogan of the Washington Post uh, is with us today. Very excited to have him. So we actually the third soundbite we have is, again, of our former national intelligence or director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, speaking to the issue you just raised, Josh, about what does Biden have that he could release that would help us all understand? Here he is. Listen. Is there still major intelligence that goes to proving the virus came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology that's still not in the public domain? Yes, there's compelling intelligence that hasn't been declassified. When you declassify intelligence, you 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 risked you know the potential human sources or signals intelligence where your where your eyes and ears into the to their actions are coming from, and so we put out as much as we felt we could safely do um, at the time. But I think the time has come for the Biden administration to declassify additional information that would, again. Um, uh, more evidence if you need it that that Chinese Communist Party officials acted badly, bullied international officials, um, covered up intelligence and reporting on this. 
um, there is more intelligence out there and I'd like to see it uh, declassified because it'll create additional pressure, not just on Chinese Communist Party officials, but others that still continue to deny that China is a bad actor here. But that's not going to happen, right? There's not even a whiff that Biden's going to declassify anything. And he doesn't want to. Why? You touched on it before the break. Right. So some of the things that we kn- the known unknowns, uh, as Rumsfeld used to say, are that we know that there were sick researchers at the lab in October and November of 2019. We don't know what they were working on. Uh, I'm told that it's back coronaviruses. That would seem relevant. Right. What were their names? Where are they now? Can we talk to them? You know, we, we know that the EcoHealth Alliance and uh, the NIH were doing uh, business with the Wuhan labs. We haven't seen the documents. We haven't seen the the files, you know, we we don't, you know, so there's there's a lots of obvious stuff that they could release. Now, why they don't do it, you know, it's it's because they don't see a political upside in finding out how we got into this mess. And that's the crazy thing is that in Congress, it's really only Republicans who are looking into this. Uh, Democrats who hold all the subpoena power refuse to use it uh, to compel people like Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, who's resigning, by the way, after uh, decades of service, uh, you know, or Peter Daszak or any of these guys to to put their hand on a Bible and tell us what they know and then to show us the records. And, you know, I get it. I understand why they're in a bind. They're trying to set up a, sh- a summit between Joe Biden. That's what they're doing right now. Jake Sullivan is in Zurich meeting with the the Chinese leadership to set up a summit between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. And the Chinese are flying planes over ha- Taiwan every single day. And it's a tense situation. Mm-hmm. I get it. This is an inconvenient thing to bring up. Okay. But it's 700,000 dead Americans, so we're going to need some answers. And there's no statute of limitation on 700,000 deaths. And it informs how we move forward and how we do science and how we protect ourselves from the next pandemic. So, yeah, it's all political downside for the Biden team. But you know what? Tough. Uh, What what about the rest of the world? I mean, are they as dependent on China as we are? I mean, isn't there somebody is there some other brave actor anywhere who can get to the bottom of this since we don't have the spine for it? You know, it's as it turns out, every time a country uh, raised this issue, the Chinese government punished them horrendously. When Australia called for an independent mm-hmm. investigation, the Chinese government uh, decimated their beef and wine industries uh, with a snap of the finger in the middle of a pandemic, crushing their farmers just for suggesting it. OK, and that's because, uh, you know, that's how much the Chinese Communist Party is devoted, not to finding the answer, but just to making sure that nobody else does. That's all they want for them. Not knowing is enough. And, uh, you know, and as it turns out, the U.S. government is the only organization in the world that's left that's powerful enough to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party. And all we really need is the will to do so. Let me ask you about Daszak in one other way. Uh, This letter that was written, uh, I think it was a couple days ago, October 1st, uh, from top scientists to the HHS secretary demanding that um, he be booted. Um, they say he has concealed several extreme situations of conflict of interest, withheld critical information, misled public opinion by expressing falsehoods, and they want to push him out of this nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance, nearly the entire budget of which comes from us U.S. taxpayers. They say the board has a moral and a legal obligation to investigate his behavior. And some of the things they cite him as having done, and uh, having done, they accuse him of having lied when he said the Wuhan lab doesn't keep Uh, didn't keep live bats on premises when recently uncovered footage from 2017 shows bats in cages there. Whoops. Um, That he made unfounded claims about why virus samples and sequences held by the Wuhan lab were taken offline, making them oh weirdly inaccessible to outside researchers. He failed to publicly publicly disclose that EcoHealth Alliance had applied in 2019 to the Pentagon 
for that gain of function research grant you just mentioned. Um, and they, they mentioned Fauci and Collins repeatedly denying that federal funds went to support um, that, that kind of research at the Wuhan lab. But, you know, there's real questions about whether, in fact, we did. Um, they, I could answer that when list, the, but, you know. but no, but, but here. But here's what I want to ask you. Why wouldn't the board investigate him? I mean, the obvious answer is because they were in on it, because they knew, because they can't fire Peter Daszak, because they'll go down with him. Um, so who's going to investigate the board? <laughs> I don't think they will get right. rid of him, right? If their hands are dirty, they're not going to get rid of him. So what are our options? Because this guy clearly should not be staying in this post. Right. I mean, we again, we can't have the scientists policing the scientists. It doesn't work. That's what we should have learned from this pandemic. We can't have Anthony Fauci overseeing Anthony Fauci. We can't have Francis Collins overseeing Francis Collins. We can't have the Eco Health Alliance overseeing Peter Daszak because it doesn't work. OK, none of these organizations are self-correcting. Now, the fact that it's U.S. taxpayer money means that we actually do have an out here, which is to get Congress and the administration involved, because that's your taxpayer money, my taxpayer money. Uh, and there's no accountability. There's no transparency, even in the biggest crisis in the world. And, you know, the thing that I was going to add to your list is that he actually, you know, coordinated the effort to call the lab leak theory conspiracy theory, as we now know, by coordinating all those letters from the scientists and put a chilling effect on the scientific community that's only thawing right now, two years later. And, you know, that's really what's going on. It's not just that's why the lab leak theory is is, is so explosive, not because it implicates China, because it implicates us, because we sp funded that research, because it implicates our labs and our scientists and our heroes of the pandemic, including Anthony Fauci, who I'm sure was trying to prevent pandemics, but is now helping to obscure the investigation into how we got into this pandemic. And you're right. We, 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 we never let the boards of the companies police their own companies. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's foolish. We have to have Congress and the Biden administration do it. And if the Biden administration won't do it, then we have to have Congress push them to do it. And again, that's kind of happening. But I mean, geez, it's slow. And every year that goes by, we get farther and farther away from the truth. You know, it's it's easy to talk about this in the abstract as a policy matter and throw the numbers out there. But it's like, you know, I think of just just last week, there was a funeral for Don Sorrell, who is my son's teacher. And, um, you know, he was a, his music teacher. And my son was devastated when he died from COVID. He had gone into the ICU during the quarantine. And then things looked like they were getting better and they weren't. And he it took a turn. He died. Um, and they had to wait, of course, to Sorry have a memorial. That. But, you know, so many people have lost loved ones. My, Janice Dean, my pal, lost both of, both of her in-laws and so on. Kids have died. It, like, I, forgive me, but these fuckers have lied to us for long enough and we need to know the truth. I mean, just to put too fine a point on it. But <laughs> I, we need to know this. People, millions of people are dead. And Peter Daszak is allowed to get away with his lies. The Biden administration looks the other way. The information's there. If only we will push for it and demand it. And we have no assurances this won't happen again. It's infuriating to me infuriating. I, there's just nothing we can do. And I don't even know if we get another president in there, Josh, whether he or she would handle it differently because China's got us so, you know, by the you know what? <laughs> well, listen, there's a lot we can do. There's a lot we must do. There's a lot we can do here, but there's also a lot we can do with China because in the end, really, it's not right. All of those tragic stories. I'm so sorry to hear about your friend's losses. And we all have stories like that. But, you know, think about this, the, all the countries where they don't have vaccines, where they don't have food, where they don't have shelter, where they don't have water and they don't have medical care or ventilators. And that's most of the countries in the world who are still suffering very, very greatly and will continue for years and years and years. And, mm -hmm. you know, if the Chinese Communist Party is allowed to uh, avoid responsibility, and accountability for that, what will that teach them? You know, yeah. uh, yes, we have to we have to clean up our own shop. We have to um, yeah. realize that science is a national security issue, that 
viruses are dual use technologies and we have and if the chinese government thinks they're dual use technologies then we have to think of them that way and yeah we have i to, gotta le- gotta leave it there because we, we're up against a hard break so apologies for the mid-sentence but um thank you you're brilliant love love your book thanks for being here um we're gonna pick it up with dr scott gottlieb he used to run the fda uh right after this break don't miss that love josh rogan Welcome back to the Megyn Kelly Show, everyone. Joining me now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and author of the book Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Scott also serves on the board of directors of the pharmaceutical company Pfizer. Uh, Scott, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Can we, let me just pick it up where I left it with my last guest, Josh Rogan, who's been doing great reporting on the origins of COVID-19 and, you know, says, look, everything needs to be investigated and you got to keep some space open for the possibility that it was natural origin, but that the evidence is pretty overwhelming that this thing came from a Wuhan lab. And President Trump said as much in a, in a soundbite that was in a documentary that we just discussed. So did our former director of national intelligence, who said he's he requires no further proof. Um so I read recently that you were still hedging on it, saying you still think it's of natural origin. Do you still feel that way? Well, I wasn't hedging on it. Um, you know, what I've said publicly is that I think it's um, 50-50. I think it's hard to make a call either way based on the evidence that we have. And this is going to be probably a battle of competing narratives for um, a period of time, if not in perpetuity, unless we have one of two things. Either we can definitively find the natural host, the zoonotic source, or we have a whistleblower in China who comes forward with information that's more definitive that this came why out of the lab. Been, why haven't we been able to find the host so far? I mean, we're yeah, not going to well, find it so, now. We already went over there. We tested 18,000 animals. We didn't find it. Right. So as I was saying, I think the side of the ledger that points towards a lab um, has certainly grown over time. Uh, and the, the case for this being a lab origin, I think, has gotten stronger over time. And the case that this came out of a zoonotic source has been at best stagnant over time and probably weakened because you're right. We've looked exhaustively for the zoonotic source. We haven't found it. We've fully disproven the lab, the the wet market as a place of um, the origin of this virus. Even the Chinese government now concedes that the West wet market wasn't the origin of the virus. It was just a stop along the way. And I think you have to start factoring in the Chinese government's own behavior where they with, withheld key information. You can certainly draw inferences from their behavior that this points towards a more um, potentially sinister source coming out of a lab. So I think that the, the lab side of the ledger, and, and Josh does a good job in his book, And in the articles he's written, recounting some of the recent evidence that there was an outbreak of infection in the lab right around the proximity when we think that this virus first made its jump into humans, that the Chinese government had coronaviruses, novel coronaviruses in that facility that they were experimenting with that have never been disclosed, that they were infecting transgenic animals with fully human immune systems, which makes it more likely that the uh, virus could have become human adapted. And of course, the humanized mice. Yes, but uh, all of that's true, what you're saying, but that's why we all believe that it's a it was a lab leak. I mean, at this point, you've got to place your bets and you look at the gene splicing that was done um, that now I talked about this report in The Wall Street Journal by these two guys and they've just followed it up. Uh, It's uh, Richard Mueller and Dr. Quay who talk about specifically how there is a a gene splicing. There's strong evidence of gene splicing into the COVID-19 virus. And it's all there, black and white. They call it the furin cleavage site, which would not be in the COVID-19 genome if this thing were from a natural source. It would be extremely unusual. I, I, I have a whole chapter in my book about the case why this 
uh, could have come out of a lab. Um, so, uh, you, you know, you're talking well, what's to the evidence that it's natural. Believes- I mean, maybe that's what I should be asking you. Well, like I, at this point, I sh- I'm upset because we need to know and we seem to be giving the Chinese a total pass on this. And I, it's like, I don't I don't I'm open minded. When this thing started, I'm totally open minded. I just tell me what it is. But we have just sort of phoned it in on the Intel investigation. We don't all the signs seem to be pointing to Wuhan lab. And we're not demanding that they release their information, the Chinese, which they still could. And, and you know, you are in a position of power. Why don't you don't we care? We need the information. Right. As I say in my book, the reason why it's important to get to the bottom of this question definitively um, and to find that smoking gun that can definitively prove whether or not this came out of a lab is because if we do assess that there's a high probability this came out of a lab and we have definitive evidence of that, it's going to change how we govern research around the world and how much we trust countries to be forthcoming, not only about the research they're doing, but about outbreaks that they have. And we're going to have to get our foreign intelligence agencies more engaged in the mission of assessing and surveilling labs. And so there's a Well, how are we not there? Explain to me. I, I, with respect, I just don't want to go to, into talking points because I, I, we're there. Like the the smoking gun. You you don't have videotape of the murder, but you've got a lot of circumstantial evidence around the murder. You can see the gun on the scene; it's still smoking. You can see the gunshot residue on the person you think is the main suspect. You can, you have an eyewitness saying he did it. This is th- that's how circumstantial cases are made beyond reasonable doubts in courts of law. Right, I, this is that's I, I the genome you, right here, Megan, the splicing I'm not, of the genome. I'm not the right guest to be arguing that. Uh, this, I'm not the one coming on arguing this came out of a zoonotic source. I have not been arguing that. I've said that I I believe there's a high probability this came out of a lab. So yeah, 50-50 is not it. Uh, So you're coming over. You're going to give me, it's more than, more likely than not. I'm not coming over. I've been there. I've been, I've been out front on this and I've been criticized by people who are on the opposite side of this issue um, for having a high index of suspicion that this could have come out of a lab. What I'm just saying is, you know, if we want to sort of galvanize global action, it's going to take more than the inference and the circumstantial evidence that we have right now. It's going we to take have more. We have inside China. That's insane, that's Scott. You, we have so, so much. Look, we have so much. And we we did this Intel review, which was completely phoned in and effortless. I mean, it really wasn't sincere. And now you see like the former DNI saying Biden's got documentation that he could release Joe by President Joe Biden and he won't do it. So, look, you're not going to unless you've got the murder on videotape, you can never convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that 100 percent they've got it right. But you can get them to the point based on circumstantial evidence. They 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 have figured it out. And I just think we're there. I. Look, There's what do you make of the pieces of evidence that would still be obtainable potentially um, that I think could be uh, really important here? The world could put pressure on China to release the source strains. They still haven't done that. That could, if we have access to those original strains, that could get us closer to the natural origin of this virus. Um, you know, there's probably more information that could be gleaned from what that lab. We don't know what was in the inventory of the lab. They've never they've never revealed the sequences of the viruses that they had on hand. There was an outbreak of an unusual strain of coronavirus in pangolins in proximity to when SARS-CoV-2 first started to spread, March of 2019. We still don't have access to those samples. So if we start putting pressure on China for those discrete pieces of evidence, I think that they can provide a stronger case on whether or not this came out of a lab origin or it came out of a zoonotic source. How do we do that? We don't have those pieces of evidence. What specifically should we do? Well, I think the World Health Organization's failed to put pressure on China. They, 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 one thing that they've refused to do is call on China to release those source strains under a premise that China is not obligated to do it under the international Us, health regulations, which isn't what true. What can we do? 
I think we could work through international bodies to put more pressure on China for uh, oh, to release. What about the United States? So Why do we need the international bodies have done nothing for us? The WHO is in on it. They went over there and did an investigation that was absolutely useless. It wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. Even they recognized that they had embarrassed themselves. Watch the 60 Minutes report on it. What can the United States do? What should we do this week to get real answers? Yeah, look, I one of the things I argue in the book is that we need to get our foreign intelligence agencies more engaged in doing surveillance around pu- the public health mission. Um, I suspect they're much more engaged now than they were before SARS-CoV-2, but I think there needs to be a much more explicit role for the CIA and the NSA in these kinds of endeavors. Historically, surveillance around um, foreign labs and emerging outbreaks has been left to public health authorities and largely the CDC, and we've seen these sort of multilateral commitments and agreements that we had in place didn't work at surfacing the information that we needed. Well, what about what about sanctions? I mean, A, we don't really need spies because we've got Peter Daszak and I'm sure he's either spoken or could be forced to speak about what exactly was going on there. He may not be speaking to us, but he's speaking to somebody. I'm meaning the media, but he's speaking to somebody. Uh, And B, what about sanctions? Why don't we cause some pain for the Chinese so that they fork over the information? Are you in support of that? Look, I'm in support of putting pressure on the Chinese government to be more forthcoming with some key pieces of information that we know could help um, get to the bottom of this case that we don't have right now. What the right diplomatic tools are, I'd leave that to Josh Rogan and others to uh, to figure out. But I can tell you what we're missing. We're missing the source strains. We're missing an inventory of what was in the WIV. We're missing um, some of the coronaviruses we know were circulating in China preceding this outbreak that could be helpful in determining whether they could have been the original uh, strain, particularly that outbreak in pangolins in March of 2019. So there's some key information that if we had access, we're missing um, the blood samples drawn on the workers in the web. If we had access to those blood samples, we'd be able to test them to see if they had antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. That information was never made available. The Chinese told us that they didn't, but we never actually had access. Do you to the know whether we've data. ever tested those nine thousand athletes who got it at those Chinese military games? Have we tested them, or did we early on for the antibodies? Because that that would be telling too. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I doubt it. I don't know how we would get access to those blood samples. Hmm. Let's switch gears. Um, there's so much to talk about. Vaccinations of children, and I know you have three children. How old are your kids? Um, 11, 11 and eight. So two uh, of them will soon be vaccinated. Okay. So I've got my, my 11 year old just turned 12 last weekend. Um, I have a 10 year old and I have an eight year old. So we're kind of in the same boat. Um, and I knew you're very pro vaccination of children and I don't want to just write, I don't, and I am very pro vaccination for adult. I just want to say that up front. I got vaccinated. I have Pfizer. I got your vaccine. Um, but I, I'm more hesitant. I'm not vaccine resistant. I'm vaccine hesitant when it comes to my children. Maybe I'd feel differently if they were teenagers, like older, 18, 19, but I'm not sure. Um, So I'd love to, I want to get into it with you on like why you love them and why you think that we should do them and all that. But I want to give you the chance to explain first why you'd give it to your own child. Because to me, that's the best evidence. It's it's not, you know, you don't, you don't believe it's harmful. You work for Pfizer. I mean, well, you have a relationship with them. And I know a woman who works for Pfizer and she loves the vaccine. And she said she's going to give it to all of her kids. And that honestly made me feel better about it. So make the case for why we, I shouldn't be vaccine hesitant on my children. 
Well, look, I, I understand the hesitation any parent has about putting um, a medical product in an otherwise healthy child. And, th and that's where a lot of the uncertainty and unease about uh, vaccines derive from generally. You're taking a healthy child and, and you're using a medical product on them and there's, there's risks associated with any medical product. And the bottom line is that SARS-CoV-2, as much as we've talked about the fact that thankfully it's not nearly um, as dangerous in children as it, it is in older adults, it's still a dangerous virus. I mean, this is a virus that certainly is more dangerous than, you know, enterovirus or echovirus or other viruses, Coxsackie virus, that cause bad outcomes in kids when you see epidemics sweep through populations. Um, people always talk, point to the fact that only 500 kids, a little over 500 kids have died of SARS-CoV-2, which in and of itself is a tragic number um, and makes it more deadly than a seasonal flu typically is, but, um, but not this past year, but that's not, but that shouldn't be reassuring because we see a lot of long-term term sequelae from this virus. And it's a virus we don't fully understand. So it's a virus. I don't think we should want kids to get, we should be taking measures to try to prevent this from becoming epidemic in children. Um, so on, on that side of the ledger, I have concerns about allowing my kids to be continually vulnerable to this virus. And, what we've seen in the literature so far is people who've been vaccinated against the virus, even if they get infected with it, they're less at risk for some of the long-term complications that we've seen with SARS-CoV-2. And on the other side of the ledger, there was concern that this is a new vaccine and that it wasn't put through um, as deliberate of a development process. I would say on both those points, number one, these were the largest clinical trials ever run with any medical product in modern times. Fully 90,000 patients were enrolled in trials for the mRNA vaccines. The only, the only vaccine I remember, the trial that I remember being on par with that was the rotavirus vaccine, which was about 60,000 patients. There weren't 90,000 um, children. We, we now have data on um, more than 300 million doses administered in the U.S. So it's a substantial um, database of, of safety I know, but you're trying, to, you're trying to talk me out of my vaccine hesitancy on my children. I got the vaccine. You got me. Um, right. But but my children, you only did testing on 2000 children. That's that's not the same. And, the, you know, the presumption is that the, the data from the adult population is transferable to the experience in children. I mean, if you look at any medical product, but any children other vaccine, aren't mini adults. If you look at any other medical product, um, you look at the data from 16 to 25, the side effect profile, and that's you do separate tr uh, trials in children. You're right. We, we're looking specifically at this vaccine in children. But the data set that's available for adults is informative. You don't just take that and throw it out. You use it to help inform the overall perception and picture of the safety of the vaccine. And that's what's been mm -hmm. done here. Mm -hmm. um, the I want to I want to ask you because I you go on um, CNBC. I've seen you on Squawk Box, and also um, I think Face the Nation. And one of the things you said I really wanted to follow up on it because you said there are different ways to approach vaccination. You said it's not a binary decision: do I vaccinate my kid or not? Well, sadly, it kind of is for a lot of parents out there. And let's just talk about places like the Los Angeles School District, where it is a binary choice. They don't get to do any of the things you were saying on Face the Nation. You said you could potentially wait for the lower dose vaccine to be available. No, they can't. They've got to do it. You said um, if your child has already had COVID, one dose may be sufficient. That's not true. They're, they're not allowed to do just one dose. They have to do two doses. That's what's been required of them. And I, I think I love like your push for flexibility, but it's not what's happening. It's parents are being mandated to get two doses, the full doses that are available right now, not a lower dose, the 30 micrograms for the kids right now, or they cannot go to school. That's not fair, is it? Well, look, I've come out and said that I'm highly skeptical of federal mandates. I think that you know decisions around 
vaccination to the extent that they're collective choices and they are collective choices because your decision to get vaccinated or not does affect your community, your workplace. To the extent that these are collective choices, I think they should be made at, at as local a level as possible. So I think local school districts, states, mayors um, are well within their discretion to establish mandates for their local communities. I think that's where these decisions should ultimately be made. So I wouldn't second guess any any state or mayor or employer who feels that the only way to protect their local population, their workplace, is through mandated vaccination because of the unique circumstances, the environment in which they operate. I think at a macro level, um, there are different approaches you can take to vaccinating a child. For parents who have concerns, whether those concerns are grounded in clear science or not, people just have general apprehensions, you can make a choice to extend between the two doses. You can make a choice in a child who's already had COVID, perhaps to give one dose that might be appropriate. There'll be a lower dose vaccine on the market. Hopefully at some point soon, the FDA is meeting on October 26th to discuss that vaccine. That could potentially be used in children um, who are smaller in size, who who might be, you know, above the age of 12, but biologically, um, you know, not as progressed or smaller. So there's different approaches that you can take in consultation with your pediatrician to but try that's just to theoretical. Whatever concerns that's just, you may have. I love, I, I, look, not, I appreciate you talking. Se- talking. It is too, because the parents in LA do not have that choice. They've got to stick a vaccine right, you're talking, you're talking in their 70 pound 12 year old. That's the same as they put in their 200 pound husband. Right. You're talking about one city and one part of the country. Well, I, I'm living it myself. I'll be honest with you. I have my kids in private school here in Connecticut. They don't yet have to do it because as I said, my oldest is 12, but that's only because the Pfizer vaccine, your vaccine, hasn't so you yet. To, do you want me to defend? It hasn't yet been permanently approved. So I'm just saying I'm, I'm about to face this because if just, I don't get my kid so vaccinated by the time he's 16, he's expelled. So why don't you give me the answers and, and, and instead of the questions? Because do you want me to defend the city of Los Angeles or criticize them? Because I'm not involved in making policy in Los Angeles or California. Well, I'm wondering how you feel, because what you said is we shouldn't involve we shouldn't second guess like a mayor, but this isn't we're talking about not talking about a mayor mandating it for children or for adults. We're talking about a school district mandating it for children or they're expelled. And you and I both know that the damage of expelling a kid, forcing him not to attend school or, you know, even better scenario would be via remote. But that's not even offered. Um, that's not OK. Right. So it's like so. The, so but this is the broader question. Um, those who are skeptical of federal mandates, and I gather you're skeptical of federal mandates. I'm skeptical of federal mandates, um, mm-hmm. and I've been critical of you know the Biden administration's decision to mandate this on on private businesses down to 100 employees. Are you also skeptical of local businesses, um, local t- towns making decisions for their community? And that's what it sounds like. See, mm-hmm. I, that's where I draw. I don't the line. like the I, mandates. I I I, we're, I think if we're going to, um, first of all, we mandate vaccine as part of the uh, as part of going to school. I know. The, the and, vaccine and I got my kids all those, but they're new. This one's new. Well, by the time that this one is actually incorporated into the vaccine schedule, it's going to be a long way off. You know, California moved quickly here. I wouldn't expect many other parts of the country to mandate vaccination. It's happening right now. I'm telling you right now, it's happening in private schools and across the country. It's happening in my own private school right now. And by the way, you mentioned the flu. They don't mandate the flu vaccine. And that did kill more kids last year than COVID. Oh, a lot of school districts do mandate the flu vaccine, actually. It's not a nationwide thing and it's not a school district wide wide thing. And the flu vaccine's been around for a lot longer. 
So what's your point? I mean, you know, this my is point is we know more about be... the flu vaccine not causing long term problems with children. It's not as experimental. I don't know what the reports are, but I certainly haven't heard anything about myocarditis caused heart inflammation in children from the flu vaccine. Um, but the flu vaccine in most school districts is not mandated. It's not. Yeah. And this won't be either, Megan. You're talking about select school districts. This is by the time that this is incorporated into the childhood immunization schedule, and I believe it eventually will be. It's going to be down the road when you have multiple vaccines on the market, fully approved by the FDA. Right now, we do not have that. So I wouldn't. Exp- I, I think the districts that you're talking about are the outliers. I'm not responsible for making their policies, and I didn't come on your show to defend their policies. I don't run I'm the city of Los what you Angeles think. or the like whether, whether you like I'm these mandates you what, or you I'm don't. You, I'm telling you what I think. What I think is that the federal government um, should give discretion to states local businesses, mayors to make these decisions on behalf of their communities. That's where I think public health decision making should be made. That Mm -hmm. should be the locus of the decision making whenever possible. And to the extent that some districts are making decisions that you may not agree with, Mm -hmm. uh, what do you want the federal government to come in and block them? What are you for the federal government doing this or not doing this? I'm for the federal government leaving discretion to private communities to do this when the private communities step well, in for the to do medical it, even if they make a decision that you might not agree with I, I don't want to take away their discretion to do that that's that's no, where we've traditionally left these decisions i get it i get that but I, as a parent, am upset that the the principal of the school is sticking his nose in between me and my child. That should be a decision for me and my pediatrician, and, you know, and that's what gets me upset, right? Like I subjected well, myself these, to, the, but, to the federal government. Well, this, this is a more fundamental question. I mean, is the decision to get vaccinated a, a collective decision or is it an, an, an individual choice? These are not just individual choices. The reason why we mandate vaccines in the first place and have a childhood immunization schedule is because decisions that people make affect the community. So communities set standards about these kinds of uh, actions. And that's why we have a childhood immunization schedule. Have some schools moved ahead of where the CDC is in terms of mandating this? Yeah, a couple, a, a handful have, and you're citing them right here. Most, but I don't believe- You don't think well. it's coming at a think... CDC level? You don't think so? Because Dr. Fauci's already saying he's he's in favor of school mandates for the vaccine. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect to see the CDC incorporating this into the childhood immunization schedule, like, like I said, until there's multiple approved vaccines on the market. Um, that's a ways off at this point. I hope you're right. It's certainly not what we're hearing from Dr. Fauci. Um, He's switched on it. He used to say he wasn't in favor of mandating the vaccine at all. And then certainly with respect to children. And now he's reversed himself on both of those things. And, you know, it's like our kids who are going to have to take the risk. And it with only 2000 children tested just over. um, I feel like. Yeah, Yeah, you you cite the 2000 in the clinical trial, which was a a trial looking at um, antibody response. It was an immunological trial. There's been thousands of doses administered, more than that, tens of thousands. You have a pretty large data set on children aged 12 to 16, and that data is being used to inform the FDA's decision. And I mean, how long has that been in existence? In other words, have we had have we had any long term time to reassess that. In other words, I'm trying to I'm inarticulately trying to say there's been no long term testing because we just came up with the vaccine. And I love the vaccine. I think it was miraculous. And I think we should be really proud of the guys at Pfizer and Moderna and J&J who did this. But 
there's no long-term testing. And while I might take the risk for me knowing that, I've had my kids. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And I realize there's no evidence it hurts fertility. I, I want to say that out loud. But I understand. I talk to a lot of young women who are hesitant for that reason. I look at my own kids and I have a different responsibility for them, right? There has been no long-term testing. And, and my littlest yeah, guy I, is eight. I understand that. Look, there, there's long-term data available now in adults, obviously. The vaccine has been on the market for well more than a year and a half. You could go back to the original trial. The first patients were dosed probably almost two years ago at this point. There's been 300 million doses administered in the U.S., almost 6 billion doses of vaccine delivered globally. This is the largest database of information that we have. A year and a half of data is a long um, is a long time in terms of a vaccine safety database. Usually side effects become manifest in three months. If you're postulating that there's some latent risk associated with the vaccine that's manifest after a prolonged period of time. What is it? Um, it, it wouldn't yeah, be anything tell me. necessarily. Well, but if you have a, if you have a theoretical concern, it's worth articulating what it is. Um, most of most vaccine related side effects are much more immediate within the first two months. If there is some kind of latent issue associated with vaccination, it's probably going to be from exposure to the spike protein which you also get exposed to in the context of the virus. And so it's hard to mm -hmm. postulate what that would be, what a latent side effect that would be that would only become manifest after a very prolonged period of time, which is why most vaccine-related side effects are seen within the first several months. That's important to know. That's important to know. Most vaccine side effects are seen within the first couple of months, and that's true for children and adults. It's true for vaccines generally. Um, usually within two to three months, you see most vaccine-related side effects, which is why the FDA wanted at least two months of follow-up data on at least half the patients in the clinical trial when they initially authorized this vaccine, mm -hmm. because most, most of them are actually manifest within the first two months. There are cases where you see certain things that, that are unmasked after about three months, like Guillain-Barre is uh, typically something that's a little bit more delayed. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that does make me feel better. And I will I'll be honest with you and say, as kids start getting vaccinated, you know, we're not the first to do it. Right. The kids have been getting vaccinated now for a while. I, I start to feel better about it. Right. You look around. It's like you're not seeing too many terrible reports. And it's like and I realize there are some there's always some and you never know causation. But my own hesitancy gets a little weaker as time goes by and more kids. And I think the parents who are way into this should go first. You know, the people who are dying to have that kid injected with a Pfizer vaccine, go for it. I, I would love it if you went first. Um, and I'll sit back and I'm willing to take the risk of my kid getting COVID in the meantime. But my own hesitancy is waning a little as I see lots of kids get it and seem OK, though I still have, you know, sort of the big question of long term. And then I do worry about myocarditis because we have a history of heart problems in our family. All right. We're going to pick it up um, on the opposite side of this break. Let me just pay the bills for one minute and then we'll pick back up with some more on vaccines and, and masks and all the rest of it. Can I ask you one other question, Scott? Um, one of the things that's in my craw is the fact that over in the UK, they recommend just one jab for 12 to 15 year olds, right? Just one jab. Um, and they say that's what they think is safe. So it's driving me nuts that back here, if you just want one jab, which you say could be could make sense, too. It's it's deemed not good enough by the people who want you to vaccinate your child. Like, shouldn't people allow you to get just one jab for your kid if that's what you and your doctor think is right? Well, again, no one's preventing it. I mean, you're, you're talking about a single school district that put in place a mandate um, that requires, I guess, the full. I don't I'm not even familiar with what Los Angeles has done. I, I said two doses. From what you're saying that that they require two doses to be fully vaccinated to attend school in most parts of the country. 
you know, those are decisions that parents can make in consultation with their pediatrician. As best I know, it's not being mandated anywhere else or in the country, or maybe you suggested in some private schools that you have to have the full course of the vaccination. Mm -hmm. We'll see where we end up on this. There are studies underway looking at different dosing schedules, both extending the interval between the two doses, as well as looking at one dose, particularly in people who we know who have already had COVID, where one dose could be sufficient in inducing a long-term immunity, as well as lower dose formulations in children. So all those experiments are still underway. We're going to have much more data over the next six months on some of these questions. Let me ask you quickly when you think that, because I know Pfizer has submitted some data to the FDA FDA on um, five to 11 year olds and its vaccine. has It hasn't yet applied for the emergency use authorization, has it? It's, it's going to imminently. So that meeting's October 26, where the FDA is going to evaluate that application for kids ages five to 11. And remember, that's, a, that's the 10 microgram dose. That's a dose that's one third the dose that's being used in adults. Same formulation, same exact vaccine, but in a lower dose. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it, it, I mean, to me, if you're going to get the vaccine, it makes sense that your little guy doesn't require as much of it in his or her body as your husband or yourself. Um, which is one of the things like, you know, if you've got a thin 12 year old or, you know, a smaller 12 year old, you should be allowed to to talk about that. You should be allowed to give him the 10 microgram as opposed to the 30, don't you think? And I suspect, look, I, I suspect there's going to be parents and pediatricians that um, discuss those kinds of decisions. And you know, my point about this not being a binary choice was just that. I think you have discretion to talk to your doctor about what this best strategy is for your particular child. Well, you should. I mean, look, I'm experiencing it firsthand myself, as I mentioned, and I feel for those parents in L.A., you know, their public school is a lot trickier than private school. I can pull my kids and put them in another school tomorrow. But public school, you know, you're stuck there. You live there. You pay taxes. They got to take your kid. It's just a lot more complicated. Um, Let me talk to you about natural immunity, because you keep saying you could get one dose if your kid had covid. And it's not just about kids. Don't want to talk about natural immunity with kids and adults, because um, Marty McCary, who we've had on the show, he's a doctor at Johns Hopkins, well-respected doctor. He's made the point that natural immunity should count. And if you look at what they're doing in some places in Europe, like Italy and other places, they're recognizing that natural immunity from COVID should count to get you on the airplane, to get you to, so you can keep your job in a place that's requiring, you know, a, a vaccine passport, if you will. Um, On August 21st, Israel published the most powerful and scientifically rigorous study. He writes in the Wall Street Journal on this subject to date, they sampled more than 700,000 people, found that natural immunity was 27 times more effective than vaccinated immunity. So why should anyone who's got natural immunity have to have a vaccine? Well, look, I think we should recognize that people who've had infection, particularly people who've had recent infection with the Delta variant, have immunity that's probably going to persist for a period of time. I don't think it's going to persist forever. I think at some point they'll need to get vaccinated in order to make sure that they secure that immunity in the long run. But there is a durable immunity that people acquire from um, from infection. And we don't see a lot of people getting reinfected after prior infection. I wouldn't argue that natural immunity is better than vaccination. I frankly wouldn't argue that vaccination is better than natural immunity. The data right now is mixed. You can find studies on both sides of this equation. What I would say is that natural immunity does confer protection for a sustained period of time, not forever, but for a sustained period of time. Now, getting to the policy question of whether or not we're going to allow natural immunity to substitute for vaccination, you know, one of the reasons why we require vaccination as a policy matter as a demonstration of immunity is because we can verify vaccination. 
it's hard to verify prior infection if the people who are previously infected are unwilling to um, you know, bring a positive PCR test or, or embrace things like immunity passports in Israel, where they actually recognize natural immunity as, a, as being protective and as a substitute for vaccination for entry into public venues, for example, they have the green card system where you can demonstrate that you either were recently vaccinated or recently infected. I suspect that if we adopted such a, a practice here in the U.S., there'd be a lot of people, um, particularly folks who want to rely on natural immunity, who wouldn't want to succumb, wouldn't want to embrace such a system. Mm. They wouldn't want mm-hmm. to have a passport type system. Can I ask you something? If you if you if you have the antibodies, if you had covid, does it necessarily show up in your blood? I mean, would your blood test absolutely show that you had had it? You could use the antibody tests um, in a binary way to say whether or not you've been exposed to the virus or not. They're not reliable in terms of giving a quantitative measure of what your level of immunity is. Probably the most reliable way, if we wanted to rely on natural infection uh, as a demonstration that you have immunity that's going to be durable, the most reliable way to do it would be a proof that you actually had the infection. So proof that you were mm. PCR positive for the okay, infection. Okay, so let me jump in and, and ask you a particularly recent proof. Yep. So let me ask you a follow-up, because I know that you know, the subjects or the, the studies are showing that all these vaccines wane over time, but especially Pfizer, it must be said, more so than Moderna, as it turns out, uh, it, the effectiveness in keeping you out of the hospital, it wanes over time. There was a study just out today by you guys that hit the, the presses today or yesterday saying uh, the Pfizer vaccine is only 47 percent effective at present, preventing ser- uh, hospitalization six months after your second dose. So if there's a way of telling that, right, is that do you test somebody's blood to see how effective the Pfizer vaccine is six months after your second dose? Or are you just no, looking data, at the number of hospitalizations? Yeah, I'm not familiar with the 47 percent figure that you're citing, but the data that that we're looking at, that people are looking at is mostly data coming out of Israel that shows declining vaccine effectiveness from infection and arising instances of breakthrough infections that are causing more symptomatic and severe disease, particularly in older individuals vaccinated mm-hmm. a long time ago. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the challenge in drawing conclusions about one vaccine being more effective than the other, and I've been very careful not to do that, even when data came out suggesting that perhaps Pfizer was more effective than the other vaccines. I've always said the same thing, which is that I think these vaccines are largely comparable is that the Pfizer vaccine was was authorized first. It was used first, particularly in an older population. Um, so you so there is a possibility that you're going to see the decline in efficacy first with the Pfizer vaccine because it was deployed earlier and deployed in a population that's more at risk from COVID. So you might unmask um, the side the the declining immunity first in this vaccine. I wouldn't be I'd be careful not to conclude from the data because the data that comes out hasn't been corrected for uh, time. Um, and if you remember, the Pfizer vaccine was authorized here in the U.S. in mid-December and was largely deployed initially to nursing homes, healthcare providers, and distributed through hospitals because of the requirements around the cold chain storage. And so it went into a population that was either more likely to have a bad outcome from COVID, people in nursing homes, for example, or more likely to come into come into contact with COVID, healthcare workers, for example. So. I think it's hard to draw comparative conclusions based on what we're seeing right now. We'll have a better handle on this when we start seeing long-term data on all the vaccines. Okay, but 
I mean, I have it in front of me, but I, I just read it. This is your study. This is, I don't, you may not be familiar with it, but this is a Pfizer study showing that after that's six months after the second dose, it only has a 47% effective rate. Uh, it says, hold on a second, the effectiveness of Pfizer and Biotech's COVID-19 vaccine against infection tumbles over several months, falling from a peak of 88% a month after receiving the two-shot series to 47% six months later, according to an observational study published Monday in the peer-reviewed journal the Lancet. So my point yeah, is I'm not just, to rip I'm, on the I'm, Pfizer been a vaccine. Lot of data. Yeah, I don't. No, I, I, look, fine, I'm not fine. disputing. No, that, I understand. That I, I, this isn't. I, I don't. I don't have stock in Moderna. I'm not trying to get people to to get. No, that I know. I, I'm just. I'm not familiar with every every article that comes out. I, I I've said that there's declining vaccine efficacy. I got it. I got it. But but let me get to my real point. My real point is the natural immunity wanes over time. So does Pfizer's immunity. Like they both go down over time. So. I mean, why why should I be looking at natural immunity as somehow less effective, even if I don't buy the Israel study that shows that studied 700,000 patients? You don't have you can't show me a study here that's that's come to an opposite conclusion about the vaccine yeah, so being because, more effective. Because the, 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 they the both win. Right. So the best the best argument would be that a, a vaccine, if it has declining efficacy over time, and we don't know what what the efficacy of the vaccine is going to look like after you get a third booster, you may get a more durable response, but a vaccine can be redosed. The immunity offered by a vaccine can be redosed. Mm-hmm. The immunity offered by natural infection, I presume it could be redosed if you want to go out and get reinfected, mm-hmm. but that's not really a good way to sustain long-term immunity. Um, you know, obviously you're, you have a period of immunity from, in, from your initial infection, but if you want to sustain that immunity at some point, you're either going to need to get infected. I again. get that. Or you're going to need to get vaccinated. So on that front, is it? do you think those of us who have been vaccinated are going to be looking at a situation when we have to get an annual, we have to get an annual vaccine? It's unclear. I think for a portion of the population that's more vulnerable to COVID, this might become an annual vaccine. And we may end up shifting the vaccines to be using a Delta backbone for the vaccines. If more of the mutations that happen over time are within that Delta lineage, the infection that's more prevalent right now, which a lot of people believe is going to be the case. You could well see a situation where the future vaccines are based on a Delta backbone to give you better protection against that Delta variant. Mm. What about can I ask? We only have a few minutes left, but I got to ask you about masks because I haven't I haven't picked enough scabs. Um, let's talk about masks because that I'm so over them. I think I think most Americans are so over them. And, you know, we talked with this journalist, really smart guy, did a long piece for New York magazine, David Zweig on how the CDC's own study of 90,000 kids in Atlanta showed that masks were not effective in preventing COVID. Um, There was no statistically significant difference in schools that required students to wear masks compared to schools where they were optional. And indeed, they don't require them for the younger age kids in the UK, Ireland, Scandinavia, France, Netherlands, Switzerland, Italy. And there is no greater incident of school outbreaks in those countries relative to the schools in the United States. So can we finally take the mass off of our kids? Well, look, for every article you cite that shows that there may not be an impact of masks, there's other literature that points in the opposite direction. No. Uh, I think Did you my, read the think, David Zweig reporting in New York Magazine? He looked at every single one, not one. He, he looked at every single one. I, I, think, I think on balance, the masks probably provide an incremental benefit. But you know, the consequence of going into the school year without any mitigation in place, any tactics, I didn't say no mitigation. Or, or, or keeping kids in defined social pods, um, geographic pods or implementing testing in schools. We've seen we've seen states that have taken that approach um, in the south. Florida took that approach. They didn't have any mitigation in place in a lot of those school districts. And we saw the virus become epidemic in the schools. 
Now it course its way through. What um, schools did it become outcomes. epidemic in? Amongst children in school spread? Among- That's not true. It's true. If you look at the if you look at the level of infection among kids in Florida and some of the other southern states, which didn't implement a lot of mitigation early in school year, they got it in school. Outbreaks. There's a proof. There's there's a study showing they got it in school. Well, when 27 percent of new infections are among kids, you're going to argue they all got it at home after the infection levels had started to decline rapidly among adults. The only the only category of growth in infections, if you look at the last two months or six weeks in, in some of these states, was among children under the age of 18. So it was school-age kids. And you, pres- but you strong t- presumption is, you did tell I sequence me because all the all- children to actually, right. did I sequence them to trace the origin of their, of their infection? No. Um, you know, I, 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 you're right. I do not have But you're setting up a straw man. You, you went to write to, oh, we shouldn't, you know, I'm not in favor of a school doing no mitigation. Me neither. Me neither. But the masks are not effective and there aren't studies proving that they are. The CDC's own study, deal with that, 90,000 students in the Atlanta School District, prove that they do not have any effect. Why isn't that valid? Why isn't the CDC relying on its own study to allow us to unmask our children? Yeah, my policy prescription would be that in the setting of a very contagious variant that we we don't know how hard or easy it's going to be to control in a school setting where the imperative is to keep kids in the classroom and also keep them safe. We should go into the school year adopting all the reasonable measures that we can no. take and peel them away as we masking see how has negative effects. Are. Masking has negative effects on children. That's been proven as well. This is not a harmless measure and it's not helping. So why wouldn't we be honest about the CDC's yeah, well, own information? Well, that's where we're going to agree to disagree. I think that there is a, the balance of the evidence, I think, points to the fact that the masks, if worn properly and used properly, use high quality masks. On the margin, they're beneficial in that sense. They're not. Kids aren't wearing N95s. You know that. And why Why would it be, why would the kids in the UK and Ireland and Scandinavia and France and Netherlands and Switzerland and Italy n- n- be fine not masking, but our kids somehow are in a different situation? Look, we have we have different circumstances in our schools. We have schools that are more crowded, schools that are older, have poor ventilation. Uh, there's different situations in, in school districts. And I, this is, again, where have I you think been to Italy? districts should have districts. <laughs> I haven't. Districts you think they have, have more room than we do to try to implement the measures that they think are going to protect that schoolhouse. I would have gone in. My my advice to policymakers would be to go into the school year with as many measures, reasonable measures as you can take to try to protect that environment. And withdraw them if you see that you're being successful. You look, a lot of schools aren't doing uh, routine testing in the schools. They're not keeping kids in defined geographic pods. They're letting whole classes intermingle. And I don't want to see this become epidemic in a school setting. I've seen large outbreaks in the schools, including in my local community. And I don't think that this is a benign virus in children. I don't want to see the entire American The data show that when the kids are getting it, they're getting it from teachers, not from other kids, and that the kids are not effective vectors of this virus. Do you dispute that? Yeah, that's not that's not true with Delta. You know, you, that's you're talking about data that comes out of studies with the old Wuhan variant. Delta is such a contagious variant. And the kids mount very high viral loads that we do think that the kids are transferring this infection. It's different. And the okay. CDC has been very slow to do evaluations of that. So you can't you can't base assumptions on this variant. They're, they don't they do no studies. They let Israel do it all. I mean, they, they've well, let the Israel problem. and the that's UK the do it all. That's 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 a good 300 pages of my book are about, you know, the shortcomings of CDC, which we didn't talk about today. So thank you.
Well, I kind of it's it's implied <laughs> in all these mandates that we're getting left and right from the CDC. Listen, I love to talk about Rochelle Walensky because uh, we could spend all day on her, too. Uh, listen, I, not everybody would come on and take my tough questions. And now you're going to get the really tough questions because my audience is going to call in. Scott Gottlieb next after the break, taking your questions, only the kind ones or I'm hanging up on you. 833-44-MEGYN. That's 833-446-3496. Welcome back to The Megan Kelly Show. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, is sticking around to answer some of your questions. I want to start with Pat in Illinois. What's your question for the doctor? Hi. Uh, a couple of times during the discussion, you referenced the fact that uh, this was a community. This was a decision that impacted the community. And so it couldn't be an individual decision about whether or not to get vaccinated. But my understanding is recent studies and most recently one that was released by the CDC uh, showed that the viral load and the viral spread happened regardless of whether a person was vaccinated, that they had the same viral load and spread the virus just as effectively as those who were not vaccinated. So if given that, why, how, in what way does this impact the community, whether an individual decides to get vaccinated or not? Go ahead, Doc. Well, look, I mean, if the community is vaccinated, you're going to dramatically reduce the odds that this virus is going to uh, replicate and spread at the kinds of levels we're seeing right now. As far as the specific question is concerned on whether or not someone, I think the question is whether or not someone who's vaccinated has the same propensity to spread the virus. The answer is that they're at much less risk of spreading the virus based on the data that we see coming out of Israel. So the study you referenced looked at blood levels of virus and people who were vaccinated and then had breakthrough infections and also looked at virus levels in their nasal swabs and showed that they had high viral titers on par with what people who are unvaccinated had. But what it also showed was that their viral levels declined very rapidly because they probably cleared the infection more quickly. And what it wasn't measuring was the amount of virus that they actually had in their lower airways, which is a more operative um, question or measure for gauging how infectious they are. What we've seen in the data out of Israel, and again, the data is coming out of Israel because our CDC isn't doing a good job of collecting this, but what we've seen out of that data set is that people who are vaccinated who have breakthrough infections are far less likely to spread the infection in the community. And when they do spread the infection, it's mostly within the household. And that's probably because they're only infectious for a brief period of time. And if you're only infectious for a a brief period of time, where are you most likely to spread the infection? Probably within your home. All right. I want to get to number four, Bob from Massachusetts. Hey, Bob, what's your question? Hi there. Um, Thanks for doing this discussion. It's, It's very useful. Um, sure. I have a two-part question. It has to do Just cut with, to one because we don't have a lot of time. You get you get 10 seconds. Uh, well, okay. Uh, as far as the VAR site is reporting a lot of adverse effects and even death, um, that doesn't seem to be systematically studied or understood. Certainly, many of them could be written off as probably, you know, other underlying problems, but there could be a strong percentage of that that is realistic. I hear reports about people who have died from the vaccine within 24, 48 hours. That OK, healthy. you want him to speak to the side effects. My apologies, Dr. Godley, but we literally have about 30, 40 seconds for you to address that. Go for it. Yeah, look, the various data set set is um, a challenging data set to work with because what you're, you're collecting is just um, reports of events that are associated with administration of the vaccine. So things that happen in proximity to someone getting a vaccine, just because something happens when you're delivering a vaccine, you're delivering 300 million doses of vaccine. Things happen every day to people. What you want to be able to do is see, see on a systematic basis whether there's 
a causal relationship between the vaccine and the event that you're trying mm -hmm. to observe, that's much harder to tease out from something like the VAERS database. Mm -hmm. You need clinical trials to look at that. And what you're looking for is whether that's or not a there's point. a higher incidence of some event that otherwise occurs. All right, gotta leave it at that. Well, I apologize, a hard break. Well, I'll do better the next time, doctor. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Tomorrow, we got the president of the National Border Patrol. See you then.